0: It's really easy to create a brand on social and a trendy brand that people keep eating up. Mm. And what I kind of realised was that I actually don't want to be the next big thing or hot trend because that means we will very quickly be replaced by the next, next big trend Mm -hmm. or hot thing. So we're trying to build something really strong and sustainable that will be around for a long time and that will grow with our audience, not fade away. Hey, welcome to Ladyland, a podcast by Lady Brains,
1: where we chat to ambitious women about what it takes to become an overnight success. Huge spoiler alert, the overnight success does not exist. We're your hosts, Caitlin,
2: Anna and Mabah.
1: Now get comfy, fellow Lady Brains, and ride with us to Ladyland. A few years ago, Eric did what some might consider crazy or even unthinkable she left the business she co-founded with her best friends at the height of its success to go out on her own. Erica is the co-founder of Frank Body. Yep, that $20 million brand that's referenced as one of the best Aussie startup successes in recent years. It was a difficult and courageous decision, but one that was driven by Erica's mission to fight back against the unrealistic portrayal of women by the beauty industry and her desire to create a positive narrative around what it means to be beautiful. After selling all of her shares in Frank and raising additional seed funding on just her idea, Erica started building her next venture, Fluff. It's a beauty brand for the Gen Zers, and while it's novel, it can be polarizing and at times confusing for anyone over the age of 20. It's not like any beauty brand you've seen before, and that's precisely the point. Today's episode is the story of leaving a business at its peak to build another one from the ground up. We began our chat by asking Eri about what she was like growing up.
0: So I said to you guys earlier that I have to kind of warn you that I've blacked out so much of my childhood. I don't really know why, maybe because my parents divorced when I was younger and it wasn't messy in any way at all, but there's just so much that I don't remember. I could probably count on my one hand like how many memories I have when I was quite young. What sort of age are we talking? Oh, I would say between like three and... 15, oh, my maybe. God. Maybe. Yeah. It's decent. Yeah. I'm sure if I sat down and spent the time, things yeah, would come back. Yeah. But yeah. I always say to people, if you want an insight into my head, read Nora Ephron's I Remember Nothing <sighs> because it's spot on. The title really. says it all. Yes. Yeah. I saw it in a bookstore and it spoke to me. I was like, <laughs> this is about me, not Nora Ephron. <laughs> uh, so what I do know or what I can say about my childhood is that I had a very – fortunate, like privileged upbringing, I guess. I mean, not as great as some, but definitely better than a lot. I grew up with an older brother and a twin sister and two incredibly supportive parents, a mother who told me that I had to work hard for everything. And then a father who told me that if I dreamed I could do anything. Mm -hmm. So I think that really says a lot about my grit or my motivation in life. I do really think that I can achieve a lot and I want to do a lot, but I know that in order to do that, I have to work really hard. Mm-hmm. So that's it, really. I grew up in Melbourne, went to a semi-private girls' school, mm-hmm. had a great bunch of friends, travelled when I was younger, knew pretty early on what I wanted to do in terms of being a writer. Yeah, and then where a, did that come from? yeah, I mean, a series of fortunate events kind of led me to where I am now. But I never would have thought I'd be here. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's kind of crazy. Yeah. And
2: what was the kind of like? Tipping point that led you to realise you wanted to be a
0: writer. So writing for me came about probably when I was maybe sixteen or seventeen. So at fifteen, I wanted to be a lawyer. <laughs> I don't know why. It's a bit of a pivot. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And I went and did work experience at a law firm, and that straight away crossed that yeah. off my list. Yeah,
1: often does.
0: And I remember there was a few writers that I enjoyed in terms of profile pieces or lifestyle content and that was Mia Friedman and Sarah Wilson who so have a very vintage. different opinion of these <laughs> days but yes <laughs> uh, yeah vintage stuff and I remember at one point reading from both of these women and thinking wow I think they're inside my head they're saying exactly what I've been thinking about whatever topic it was at the time And this is like a memory that stuck with me where I was like, this is something I want to do. I want to be able to kind of read people's minds or put down on paper what everyone's thinking and be able to articulate an idea or a story in ways that other people can't but want to. So that was when I decided that I wanted to be a writer of sorts. And the nearest thing in terms of a career at that time was going to Sydney and working in all the beauty of fashion magazines mm-hmm. because I knew that being a published author was a very different path mm-hmm. yeah. and not necessarily a profitable one and lifestyle writing was really the only thing that I thought would work out and so that's what I ended up pursuing and I studied journalism.
2: Mm. And did you end up actually working in the fashion magazines, doing internships or anything?
0: No, I, I soon realised as well that that would be selling my soul mm-hmm. uh, yeah. to the devil <laughs> and not what I wanted to do but... I actually was probably going to end up doing that after university, but I was really lucky that I was offered a job while I was finishing up my degree. And that was a really significant fork in the road for me that sort of changed everything.
2: Yeah. What was
1: that? was that offer?
0: So that was at a marketing agency in Melbourne and I was offered the job as a copywriter and social media manager. And this was in 2010 maybe and at the time was just when businesses were starting to use social media to their advantage. I didn't really even know Mm. what social media was. Like we weren't calling it that. And even copywriter, I was like, "Mm." Mm. But I was 21, I was so stoked that someone had offered me a job full time that I was like, yes, take me, I'm here. (laughs) And my boss was incredible. I learned so much from him in terms of being a leader Um, managing staff, I learned from him spiritually, emotionally, mentally about so many things and we're still friends today and that job there was what led me to Willow and Blake and -hmm. then Willow and Blake led to Frank Mm -hmm. and then Frank has led to Fluff. So it's been a really nice series of events. Yeah, and you
2: co-founded Willow and Blake um, and then Frank with a few others straight after that first job that you had? Or you had a couple other in between. Yes. Yeah. Um, And if anyone wants to hear those stories, they can go back to the last episode (laughs) of last season. Um, Because we're really here more so to talk about Fluff. And what was the kind of precipice for you leaving Willow and Blake and Frank to start Fluff?
0: Yeah. So I was at Frank for three years before I decided to leave. And it was. The most incredible journey and incredible stepping stone for me to now be doing what I'm doing. And I'm really grateful for all the time that I had there. We in three years experienced what some businesses might experience in 10 or 20 years. So the lessons that I learned across so many things to do with business and working with people and having business partners has been so valuable and I'm still learning so much now. But it was an incredible opportunity that I don't take for granted at all. The reason that I left, I think there was a catalyst for me leaving in that at the time we were having investor discussions overseas and as part of those discussions, we would have to have stayed on for five years as Mm co-founders. Which is a long time to lock yourself into a contract when you're so used to, I guess, being the master of your own destiny and having run your own businesses and having no one to answer to but yourself. Yeah. So I had to ask myself, is this what I want to do? And probably for about a year, I had been questioning that. I was still loving my job and the people I worked with, but I had recognized that we had differences that were quite fundamentally different in terms of how we ran a business and how we managed staff and the vision that we had for the brand. Mm. And that's not to say that my way was right or any Mm. other person's was right. It's that they were all different. And I think difference and creative tension and debate is crucial for a business. That friction can really drive people and create growth. But those core fundamental differences can also really limit a company. And I knew that my differences and my beliefs were probably limiting us from going where we needed to go. Mm. And five co-founders is a lot. That's a Mm. lot lot to manage, yeah. That's that's a lot of cooks in the kitchen. Uh, And I realised I just probably wanted to be a crazy chef. (laughs) Mm. So it was a a hard decision to make because Frank was my baby. Like I loved that brand. I was so proud of what we had created and I'm still proud of what we did together. And I'd started that business and Willow and Blake with my two best friends, Brie and Jess. So it was, you know, we had made promises to grow old together in those companies. And we started them when we were really young. I was 23 or something. So I had grown up a lot Mm -hmm. as a business person in that Mm -hmm. short amount of time because of how successful the company had got in that two years. And I think I realized the type of person that I wanted to be, the type of boss I wanted to be and the type of. Business and company and brand I wanted to build, so I had to have that difficult conversation, and yeah, it wasn't easy for anyone. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then you have to logistically go through getting Mm -hmm. out of a business Mm -hmm. and a brand like that, or two businesses. So I feel like I went through two divorces, and then our staff, our children, and that's (laughs) hard. (laughs) And you have to say goodbye. That was so hard having to tell them, but I knew that I was still, I'm still so young, and. I had been thinking about this idea for what is now fluff for a little while and just sitting on it as a thought that this could be something. So that sort of motivated me. I knew that I had more to give mm. and I knew that I had to make that call when I was young because I didn't have as many responsibilities as I would maybe mm. if I was 35, 40, 50 yeah. making that decision with a lot more potential consequence mm. of leaving. What kind of
1: personal toll did that take on you? Like how did you get through that year of internal debate, I suppose? Did you have someone to talk to, guide you? What was the struggle like?
0: Yeah, it really sucked and it's very hard as well when your two best friends are the people that you're leaving essentially or they, so you feel like you, you they're the people you want to talk to but you also can't because they're part of the situation And they're gonna have their feelings and their emotions as well. I feel lucky that I've always had some incredible people around me and supporting me, from my old boss to my boyfriend at the time, who's now my business partner, who I could talk to and play out different scenarios and situations and tell them what I was feeling and try and separate like my emotions from rational thinking. Mm. But it was a it was a really long year like thinking about it and then a longer year going Mm. through the exit of both those businesses. And, yeah, definitely not the happiest period of my life at all. And I remember saying to Charles at the time when we were together, I said, this is the, like, saddest but happiest I've ever been and this Mm. is the poorest but richest Mm. that I feel. It was this, like, really stark contrast and I was going back and forth Mm. between feeling these different Mm. things Mm.
2: And did you kind of feel a bit of a weight lifted when that process was over? Or
0: totally, yeah.
2: yeah I think I because I, I was talking to you at the time, and I do remember a really like drastic shift in yeah. your mood and behaviour. It was like you were a completely different person.
0: <laughs> well, it's just it's a cloud. It's that a weight around, yeah. essentially, like yeah. a storm cloud, and yeah. it's even when you're not dealing with it day to day, it's just in the back of your mind Mm -hmm. and it's something that you want resolved. You know it's not that easy to resolve. There's lots of things involved. So it was really nice to put that behind me and for the other guys to put that behind them so that they could focus on what they're doing and I could focus on what I'm doing next.
3: It must have been very weird, like going through this process of almost grieving, but you almost, you must have felt quite energised with this idea percolating in the back of your head yeah how quickly did you kind of act on that after the sort of divorce process
0: so quickly (laughs) because I mean just like a divorce you know you don't often you're not set up straight away to just sit back and chill like Mm. I didn't have enough money to just not do anything and it took a long time for us to settle financially my leaving the business so I had to make money and I had to have a job. And I also was very motivated to have a job. Uh, I've always loved working. I can't really take a holiday for more than a couple of days without wanting to work again. Mm. And fla for the unnamed business at that time, I was so excited by it. But I've come very used to this kind of roller coaster of emotions even now, like it doesn't end, even, once you launch a startup, you go through days where it's amazing and you're high and then days where you're super low and you don't know why you bother. And that's kind of become my, like, baseline mm. and I'm, I'm used to it and it just means you kind of don't get attached to either feeling. You're just like, today I feel good, mm-hmm. tomorrow I feel bad. Mm, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I say, we'll see. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and I think that is a maybe a mistake or it's really easy to happen, but for other founders or people in business is they get so attached to a feeling um, and responding to events in a certain way. Mm. You know, Mm. business is hard. I'm showing that day in, day out. Mm.
2: And, okay, we want to touch on the name, Mm. but before we do that, how would you describe what you're doing at Fluff in your own words?
0: Mm. We like to say that Fluff is a casual cosmetics company. And so, what that means, I guess, is that we believe in this idea of made up, but not made up. We think makeup is fun, it's great, but it's not necessary. And it can make you feel pretty, but so can a lot of other things. We don't want makeup to define who you are or how you feel. And we don't believe makeup is beauty. We believe beauty is so much more than what you put on your face. I hope, or our vision for fluff is that it will be so much more than makeup and that it can offer to its audience other products, other less tangible things. Say, for example, our issues platform where we discuss things other than beauty. So I see so much potential for it there. But really, I mean, I, I'm not obsessed with makeup or beauty. I really don't think the world needs more makeup there is plenty of it out there Um, we all would know that but I do think that the world needs better beauty brands I think it needs more responsible brands and I think that we do need better makeup I think there's a lot of crap makeup out there and that we have a long way to go in terms of educating consumers so that's kind of our like vision mission all kind of tied into one Mm. But I'm also, like, very interested in this younger audience. Like, call them Centennials mm. or Gen Z, if you will. They're our future.
3: Mm.
0: I find them incredibly interesting. They communicate with each other in a way that I can't understand. Mm. And I knew that if I didn't create a brand for them and with them that they take my job. Mm.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: I wouldn't have anything to do. Yeah. yeah. So that was the gap that I noticed and what I've been trying to fill is – a cosmetics company that makes as natural products as possible but that is also paired with a as high fashion a brand as possible mm-hmm. and targeted towards its younger consumer which so many brands try to infiltrate their minds and their worlds but struggle to. And tell us about
2: the name because obviously a lot of people can get hung up on
0: names <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's a great name but was it always
2: going to be called Fluff?
0: No, so it was originally called Pony, and that was because I became obsessed with the idea of every girl wants a pony. (laughs) (laughs) And I wanted to make every girl wants a pony bronzer. (laughs) <laughs> or I had this campaign where I was like get your daughter a pony mascara for christmas. Yeah. Yeah, go figure. And luckily there was already a cosmetics company in Australia called Pony. So yeah. who would have known? Yeah. <laughs> so I very quickly gave up on that idea. And then Fluff, I can't remember the exact moment that it came about, but Fluff's actually my nickname. I had forgotten. or oh, this is one childhood memory that's come back is that My favourite toy was a sheepskin blanket that I carried around with me everywhere and it was called Fluffy. And I don't know if like subconsciously that was always in the back of my head when we were trying to think of the name but the real reason or, or sentiment is this idea of we're trying to create this awareness amongst girls and in the beauty industry that this is all fluff, that advertising is fluff, marketing is fluff, consumerism, makeup is fluff. But we don't need to preach on a soapbox. Like we should all just know that and it's okay to be a part of that. We're a part of that world mm-hmm. so long as you can recognize it and, and call it for what it is. I think the beauty industry takes itself way too seriously where it shouldn't mm-hmm. and then not seriously enough where it should. So fluff, it's, I think it's memorable, it's fun, it mm-hmm. has meaning. Um, it allows us to get away with a lot if we create something that is a little bit random like a magic eight ball
3: and you say well it's just fluff (laughs) you know (laughs) works in so many ways you
0: don't have to say that we're saying it too yeah Yeah. (laughs) so yeah
3: um so I'm really interested to hear about how you went about creating the identity for the brand the visual identity because you know I think of beauty I think of millennial pink and like tangerine and really aspirational imagery of beautiful women and all that sort of stuff but your visual identity is like primary colours and it's really bold and it's so different to what you would expect for the category. So what was your vision? How did you get to where you are now?
0: Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Great to hear. Uh, Yes, I've been pretty outspoken about my hate for millennial pink, uh, which is funny because we were one of the first brands to bring it back with Frank Body, Mm. and Mm. that was very intentional when we brought pink back into the conversation in beauty. It was a very passive colour at the time that was really around gender stereotypes and with Frank's cheeky kind of sexy personality we wanted to own pink and Mm. make it empowering for women and then somehow along the way when every brand and its dog picked up millennial pink, Mm. uh, I think it went back to this passive kind of soft Aesthetic and reference, and I'm amazed that brands are still using it. I don't know what I'm more amazed at: that consumers are still eating it up. Mm. Like it's crazy. So Mm. I kind of, I'm proud of what we did and how we use it at Frank. It was amazing, but I never wanted to do it again. Mm. And I also believed that beauty doesn't have to overtly be feminine. I wanted to see a little bit more of that masculinity in it, and our, our. original design was more along this sort of brutalist vibe. And it's funny because so many people hate it. We get emails every now and then just letting you know that <laughs> white text on bright pink does not work and you won't get users on your website and, and why are you using yellow and red? It hurts my eye. <laughs> I mean, these are from 50-something-year-old women, so not I'm okay with them not liking it. But <laughs> I wanted a brand that... Felt inclusive and didn't scream girls or beauty or and all the kind of typical assumptions that people make yeah. of a beauty brand. And the hardest challenge for us was how we speak to so many different girls and their varying interests. Cause that was one of my biggest problems, was it while every beauty brand says that they're democratic and that they're for every girl, they were creating all these little niches under this guise of inclusivity and no one was really representing different girls and their interests and their attitudes and what they want. We were still pushing specific ideas about what beauty was. So that was our biggest challenge. Like how do we, and and for me as a copywriter, how do I develop a tone of voice that speaks to so many different girls Mm -hmm. and how do I develop a voice that sounds like this demographic yes, my job is a copywriter and I think I'm okay at it, but I can't write like a 16 year old. Mm. Mm. It will just come across so forced and they can see through that stuff. So it seems so obvious, but we kind of had that light bulb moment where we were like, well, we just can't write like them. They have to write for us. Our brand has to be a mirror. We have to reflect what these girls are doing every day.
3: Mm.
0: So that's, where I knew I always wanted to involve girls in the conversation but never realised, like, how much they would underpin what we create with this brand and control it and that we would hand over a lot of that creative licence to them. But as any brand, like, I mean, we can't just hand it over to a bunch of 16-year-olds who would kind of, who knows? (laughs) But um, we need to then decide on, like, what are our core elements, like how, does, how do we bring it all together? We have to play some kind of editor role. We have to have some guiding principles and something that feels fluff as opposed to feeling like a scattered Tumblr account yeah. essentially. So Charles, my business partner, he has a branding agency, Love and Money, and we've worked together for six, seven years. We worked together on Frank mm. Willow and a number of different clients. And he is so incredible at understanding what I want and articulating the jumble in my head and pushing my ideas and presenting new ones. So I I owe that brand to him and I owe so much of this business to him. We have a a really beautiful creative partnership and both of our individual drive to create original things and to leave a mark on the world. I mean I think our work is our legacy as opposed to either of us individually, maybe wanting children or a family, like we believe in creating something bigger than ourselves Mm. and we find that joy through our work, which is really exciting and Fluff is just one of the things that we've done together.
3: So I just want to come back to you were talking about the process of developing the tone of voice and how you were not only involving girls in the conversation but actually they were helping create that Mm. tone of voice for you. What did that practically look like? Like what did you do?
0: So we have developed a content model, I guess, or system in which we have hundreds of girls writing for us and contributing content of which we pay them for. Our brief initially was for them to make up beauty for themselves or define beauty in any way other than the obvious. And we received so many different responses and formats, whether it was poems or long essays or little text messages, snippets and photos and videos and music. And for us, it really helped us get into this mindset of what these girls want and it's why often people think that Fluff's voice or output is a bit erratic or different or they can't really say what it is and it's because it's a culmination of so many different girls and we essentially provide that platform for them to speak and be heard, which is what they want so much There are no other brands paying attention to them. There are no other brands who feel comfortable handing over the microphone without heavily editing the content that they're putting out there. Yeah. So we speak to them every day online. We have them come into our showroom and hang out with us and talk to us so fast that it's crazy and (laughs) (laughs) tell us the minute details of their day and we wonder if we were like that when we were 16 to 18. And it's crazy. And then we have... We have women contributing content to us too because whilst these young girls lead a very different life to, say, someone our age, between like 29 and 35, let's say, we can relate to what they're going through and this trying to figure out oneself through beauty Mm. or through friendships and relationships so that mindset kind of almost never leaves you and which is why we've had I think older girls or women to appreciate the brand and feel connected to it and want to contribute
1: so aside from the um, content contributors how has the brand been received by your target customer? How's the brand and the product been received by them? And have you had to change anything since launching to market? I guess, you know, the the part of the brand that you have had control over, have you had to change anything?
0: Definitely. I think that I have this view that, yeah, beauty takes itself too seriously in terms of makeup's been around for a while, right? Mm -hmm. I don't really think we can innovate with products anymore, at least in a a way that's anything but totally like unnecessary yeah <laughs> do you know what i mean i was yeah. speaking to a manufacturer and they're like you should check out this eyeliner it's called a pizza cutter and it rolls over your <laughs> eyes like a pizza cutter <laughs> like, oh my god i gosh. don't need that and neither does the rest of the world that is so funny god, no. <laughs> and you know these 10 steps Processes to putting lip balm on. Like no one even needs a video of how to do that. Like come on, Mm -hmm. we're dumbing down society but then also asking to be taken more seriously as girls Mm -hmm. and women. It's crazy. So uh, we started with our product descriptions being like very, very maybe obscure to some but and a little bit kind of taking the piss if you will. (laughs) I mean our bronzer description is brush the powder on more or less and that's what you do. But you can't stuff up our bronzer. It's such so subtle. The coverage is buildable. You're not going to get an orange streak over your cheekbone. Like it will lightly build up. So you don't even need a mirror. So we're like, well, then we don't need long descriptions. Like figure it out for yourself or play, have fun. But there are people who do want that kind of descriptive copy because they've been yeah. told that for so long. They've been led yeah. that way. Like just we're all kind it. of creatures of habit, right, yeah. and we expect that. Yeah. And our, one of our big learning curves is that we have this one probably idea of the fluff we want to exist in the world of one day. You need to kind of gradually push that out to consumers because it can, if it's quite different, it can be quite alarming. Just, yeah. And yeah. people yeah. just like, I don't know what to do with this. Mm. So we have... Played around a lot with how we talk about our products. Played around with the usability of our website because I, I really wanted to challenge mm. what a beauty brand looked like online. And, again, a lot of people were just like, "How? where, how, where do I find the product? And then i talk them through it and be like, here. And they'd be like, oh. And then they'd be like, well, where is this? And I'd say, it's right there. (laughs) But they don't see it because they expect things to be handed to them on a platter, which I understand, like user experience is a thing. But I I also want to encourage this idea of people spending a little bit more time discovering, like Mm -hmm. looking, figuring stuff out. But I need to acknowledge that my experience of brands and websites and customer experience is so much more in probably intense and than the average customer who wants something quite different. So that's a big learning thing for us. Yeah. I remember
1: when you first launched and I sat on the website for like probably 20 minutes, half an hour, just scrolling through and I was like, wow, I haven't spent this much time on one website for so long, but it was so different yeah. in terms of the user experience which, you know, is not like, I think it's refreshing, but yeah. probably I hard for some customers, yeah.
0: what other website or beauty brand would say that people spend 20, 30 minutes right. on it when it's, yeah. unless it's got a huge editorial platform where you're reading heaps mm. of articles. Yeah. Like it was nice for me. I was like, I want this to be thoughtful. I want there to be little hidden surprises mm. and little secret pages that people find.
1: I know you were telling the story before you launched, which was interesting. No one was really doing that at the time. Did that build your list, first of all? And what was that process like telling everyone, okay, this is how I'm building this brand?
0: Yeah, so I started writing these email updates to anyone who would listen, whether it was my mum or more. Um, I think that was probably a cathartic experience for myself and I was like, maybe someone will want to listen and I'm just going to put it out there and see and I was a bit disheartened by the current way that startups talk about starting up and particularly in the female entrepreneurial space. Mm. I think that it's either glossed over, pardon the pun, or mm-hmm. people are throwing pity parties and saying, poor me, it's so hard. Like, mm. I also. You know, ha- I have to work 12 hours or, you know, I have to work on the weekend and I was m- sad for a month that I had no money. Like, what do you expect? <laughs> Seriously. Um, so I just wanted to be like, this is what I'm going through. I don't feel sorry for myself. I'm also not thinking that I'm d- saving the world or doing something groundbreaking. If someone just wants to listen to what the things that I'm doing, the good and the bad, here it is. And I had a really amazing response from it, and people still reply to them individually. And uh, the last one I shared as a 2018 recap it was really mm-hmm. interesting. I think a lot of people thought that I was really struggling. Like and I, I wrote about the struggle, <laughs> but I was like, but the struggle is part of business and yes, the struggle yeah. is normal. And that's what I, I want to normalize the idea yeah. of struggle because we've sort of glamorized starting up and business. Totally. especially in Australia, that anyone thinks they can do it, everyone throws themselves into it. And then when they're not a millionaire in a couple of months, they're, they're like, wondering "Well, yeah, Maybe I can't do this. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, writing about it's been amazing. I've yeah. really enjoyed it.
2: Yeah, I think it's really important as well because, to your point, people start and they expect a certain journey and yeah. then when it doesn't live up to that expectation, they're like, is there something wrong with me? Why mm. isn't... All of these amazing things happening to me, why I've been written about, making him some money, um, and a lot of people give up.
0: Mm. Well, Mm. we've had several Australian startups do incredibly well in a short amount of time. Mm,
3: mm.
0: The Uh, unicorns. Mm -hmm. Yes. And people, I think, base their expectations off of that. Yeah. But- and it's not to say that those startups didn't work hard. They definitely did, mm-hmm. but they had a, we've all had a lot of things going for us at one point in another. Mm-hmm. And social media has changed so much that what a brand experienced five years ago is very hard to achieve now in the same amount of time. And that's something that I want people to really be aware of. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and just normalising the struggles. Yeah. So good
1: on
2: you for doing that because I think that's really important. Yeah. And I think to that point you know, fluff is a big undertaking that requires a lot of capital to get off the ground. So can you tell us a bit about your fundraising journey and what that was like and why you decided to raise, obviously you needed to, but like, what was that decision-making process like for you?
0: So fluff is an incredibly different story to Frank. We started that business with maybe $7,000. I can't remember what the actual figure was. And I've put almost $700,000 into Fluff. And we are six months in, in terms of having product online. We have been working on the brand for over two years. And we've probably been talking about the brand publicly for about maybe a year in terms of having a social presence and a website. I knew that I needed to raise money because I couldn't afford to do it on my own. At Frank, we started making that product by hand. There was no minimum order quantities. Cosmetics is so different to skincare, to a product that you can make in a sink. So we're subject to minimum orders of like lowest probably 5,000 but typically 20,000 units. So straight away you see that your costs are high, especially if you want to make good products Mm. and good Mm. natural products. Yeah. Um, and good packaging, and that's a big thing for us too. There's a lot of shit packaging out there in the world. Then you look at wanting to have more than just, say, a website built on Wix myself, which I couldn't even do that, <laughs> um, and having an incredible brand. I'm lucky that Charles' agency, as part of his ownership in Fluff, does a lot for us at cost and has provided a lot of sweat equity. Uh, but I have two staff members as well, two of which, one of which I paid for a whole year before we launched, and I am so grateful for that. She has built this brand and this voice into what it is today. I couldn't have done it without her, but that's a whole year of salary mm. without earning anything off of it. We have our showroom and our office, which, again, I love, which we secured too early like way before we'd even launched because it was one in a million really it was exactly what i wanted for our space but rent isn't cheap either so we have a lot of costs that other startups wouldn't have and i i only had so much that i personally could put in Mm. i also do really like the idea of the accountability that having investors makes you have I learned so much through the investment discussions we had when I was at Frank Body and I was really comfortable with them, even though they were hard at times and stressful. I, I liked the idea. I liked pitching to people. I liked getting investors invested in our vision and what we were doing and I knew that if we could find sophisticated investors in terms of experience and what they could offer in terms of advice, as well as people who could support me emotionally, that that would be really beneficial for fluff because I, I don't just want to create a brand that turns over a million dollars. We have aspirations for this brand to turn over 10, 20, 30, to be a $100 million brand one day and that doesn't, that's not going to happen, you know, in, in five or ten years out of my bedroom.
3: Mm. It,
0: it, it could and that has happened obviously for people in the past but for The landscape that I'm in in beauty, we needed more. So I had in my head this idea that I needed two hundred fifty thousand dollars minimum, which was totally like based off a rudimentary calculation where I was like, okay, I might need this much product, and I'm going to hire this person, and I want to shop, and yeah, that's probably like two hundred fifty grand. And then (laughs) everything I know (laughs) of people had told me like whatever you want, double it. And so I was like, okay, I need five hundred grand. And at first I was like, I just want one person to invest. And I was lucky that I'd made several contacts, obviously being at Frank. Mm. Uh, people were asking what I was doing next and we kind of went about and we're like, cool, let's start having discussions.
2: It's a very rare thing to have raised seed based on an idea because when you are raising like The brand hadn't launched. It was like, this is the idea. I mean, you had the concept was well and truly thought out. But what was that like and what was the reception? I guess you had those contacts, so they kind Mm. of knew you and they wanted to invest in you. But generally, what was the reception like from people, especially Australian investors?
0: So I went out to Australian and U.S. investors at the time and typically the response from U.S. investors was you're not raising enough money, asking mm-hmm. for 250000 Australian dollars. Mm-hmm. I, I think I felt like they were, that I was asking them for like 25 cents. Yeah, <laughs>
2: yes. They were like, Pocket they're
0: like, they're like, you can get a loan for that." Yeah, yeah. yeah they like, Go to the you back. can't <laughs> build a brand with $250,000. What are you talking about? They're like, come oh, back oh, when God. you want to do Series A and yeah. I understand that. Um, so we focused on Australian investors. The idea was always received very well. I, again, was so fortunate to have Frank before me for them to be like, cool, you have done this before. And then you were speaking with this audience, like you get it, you're passionate, you want this and they could see the potential. It's, it's a fact people know how big the cosmetic industry is. It's worth something like $420 billion right now. Yeah there is so much potential for growth um, and for an Australian brand as well. You know, we have Aesop, mm. we have Jolique, we have Frank Body, but I, I, I feel like we need more Australian brands who are pushing to be known worldwide yeah. as both like brands and companies yeah. mm. in terms of what they're doing and the people they employ. Um, so it was received really well, but then, of course, you have to back it up with projections. Um, it's not just like I've got this great idea. Um, yeah, we were, we were lucky to raise just off an idea, like no previous sales, which is a lot harder to do unless you're making heaps of money. Um, but essentially I was selling them on our track record and sort of my dedication to making this happen. So we got pretty far along in discussions with this one investor and then right before we kind of signed the deal and when we were negotiating the terms, we both decided that it didn't feel right. We weren't coming to the same page of what we wanted. Um, so we, we parked that conversation and then I went out again. So overall the investment process was something like 9 to 12 months mm. of me talking to people. So we pivoted and decided to do a friends and family raise which is literally like my friends and my family have invested in this company Mm -hmm. and then people I've met from the industry and in the industry. So it might have been people I'd worked with in the past. I had people loop me in with significant people either in beauty or other industries, like sophisticated investors who've had businesses before, who saw the potential and who I could look at and want a part of our mix, who I could see growing with us and not having crazy expectations of what we were going to do and supporting us along the way.
2: Yeah. I think that's a really interesting point because it's, I think in the beauty space in particular with investors, the ones that come in, I mean, everyone likes to talk about how beauty and even CPG is such a, like, there's so much opportunity there, but the people who are actually investing early are the ones who are in the industry, not the VCs that are talking about it all the time.
0: Yes. Because they typically are in the business more for the their scaling and the mm. growth and yeah. the money. You have to sell that dream in the beginning, mm-hmm. I think. What I've found in Australia is it's actually quite easy to find money. It's hard to find the right money. Mm. And I would say to anyone if they are looking to get investment because it can be great just to choose so, so wisely. And, you know, it's it's one decision that is worthwhile spending a lot of time on because... Mm. A bad investor can really break you. You have to decide what you want in the long run. And, I mean, ideally we'd all own 100% of our company Mm. and and never have to raise. But that wasn't a question for us. And I've actually always been okay with not having 100% of my company. If I can have people who can help me build it into what it is, including staff, investors, advisors, I am more than happy to give equity away you can make a lot of money off having a small percentage of a company if it does well enough. Mm -hmm. How many investors did you end up with and what's the
1: relationship like given that they're family and friends? Is Mm -hmm. that a tough one?
0: We have 11 investors and the relationships are great. I mean I would say to people never take money from someone who can't afford to give it to you Mm -hmm. and I would never – have someone invest in my company who I couldn't sit across the table from and tell them exactly what's going on and how I'm feeling and what my weaknesses and strengths are. I would never have someone invest in my company that I couldn't have a drink with mm-hmm. and laugh with. Yeah. Um, and the people that I have, like they met all these requirements for me. So I'm really happy with the mix. Um, and when we have new interests from new people, I typically can tell within five minutes of meeting someone and talking to them, whether they're going to be right or wrong, mm-hmm. which sucks because when you realize they're wrong and you're like, shit, I have to sit through this hour of meeting. It's when like we... a
3: date. It's like a bad it date. It is.
0: Like, <laughs> <seriously>, it's <laughs> like dating. Yeah. 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 Um... <laughs> You know, and, I mean, you're taking money from these people too. Or you want to yeah. mm. provide a return from them, especially if you have any kind of previous emotional connection to them or if they're family or friends. So it's really interesting. Um, that it's got to benefit both parties, but you also have to know that they're taking a risk, that they have invested in you and you can't be too focused on, I guess, their expectations or what they might want, you need to obviously listen and be very aware, but know that you have a vision for a company, and you need to you need to go with that. Um, yeah, it's re- it's such an interesting process. Mm. I really enjoy it. It's not for everyone, though, for mm. sure. Let's talk a little bit about manufacturing
2: um, and what that's been like, because you obviously wanted a really quality product. As you said, you're working with really high minimum order quantities. How did you initially go about finding your manufacturers? Had you already raised by that time, or did you have to kind of start developing these relationships beforehand?
0: So I was talking to manufacturers straight away as soon as I realized I wanted to make fluff happen. Yeah. And yet it still has taken the longest time out of everything. Mm -hmm. So I thought after Frank Body that skincare would or the cosmetics would be a breeze because we're really good at creating natural skincare. But cosmetics in general is really tricky in Australia, and natural cosmetics is super tricky. We have a very like strict blacklist in terms of our formulations and what we want. Uh, one of the biggest things for us is not having palm oil in our products. And it's just the base ingredient for every cosmetic and Mm. most food products and what most manufacturers use. And then here's little me fluff saying, can you remove palm oil from my minimum order of 5,000 units? (laughs) You know, they don't care when they're doing orders of 100, 200,000 units and palm oil's fine. And in in my bubble, in my world, like this is a big issue that we have to tackle and want to tackle. And it's crucial to fluff. But in terms of like the mainstream audience, like there's not that there's not enough education. It's still like minority groups who know about this. Mm-hmm. But we committed to it and now it's like, right, this is a thing for us. So we went through probably five different manufacturers, maybe like 10 different samples of our first bronzing product. It was so tiring and frustrating to to finally get to where we wanted to get to. Uh, Our product's produced in Italy now. Like, Europe really is the best place for colour. And, yeah, it was a really testing process. It delayed our launch, like, six to nine months. But I am really proud of a product that we have on the market now which is great, but it's, a, yeah, it's an expensive process. You have to let people down. You have to say no to people who sells. You spend money getting it to a certain point. Uh, it can be incredibly frustrating, um, but we're here now and we're still learning. But we initially wanted to launch with four products. We wanted to have a mascara and a lip tin as well. The bronzer was the one product that was ready and that we could formulate to our expectations without palm I find it
1: devastating that you can't, that, it, that it's hard to find manufacturers that, you know, will produce what you need without palm oil mm. and all those, you know, bad things to the environment. Do you think there's a shift happening or?
0: There is. It's just, it's incredibly hard. And, you know, we have things like RSPO palm oil, which is essentially a commitment to being sustainable, but it means nothing. Yeah. And to trace the source of your ingredients is very hard and very costly. So you are taking your manufacturer's word at right. the end of the day and that's why for us we're like I can't take your word like, that this is maybe this. It, I highly I like to dead definitive. We'll just remove it. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's a shame.
1: It's a shame. Mm-hmm.
2: So if you were starting fluff all over again today, is there anything that you do differently? Would you have done everything the same way in hindsight?
0: No, I do so much differently and always laugh when people are like, no, it would, this is how it's got me to where I need to be. Mm-hmm. You know, like I'd change a bunch of stuff. Mm-hmm. But I don't regret anything that I've done. Yeah. I think mistakes yeah. are really important. And I know that I won't make those mistakes again, hopefully. Yeah. Um our biggest mistake that Charles and I talk about, and I think it's so important to acknowledge the fuck-ups, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, is that we, we lost focus at times or we tried to do too much. And that happens when you're excited and there's opportunity and there's attention, and you, you want so much. You start trying to build the brand in five years when you should be focusing on this first initial stage. And it's important to know what five, ten years might look like but to really to understand what your sort of minimum viable product is, like what it is that you need to put out first. Um, so in terms of we spread ourselves too thin probably on our marketing and comms and all of the efforts. And I, we learned so much about our audience, but this year we're really excited because we're so focused. We have three things we want to achieve. And some days I'm like, oh, my God, that's, like, not enough stuff. Like, three, three <laughs> things need, done in a whole year. <laughs> I'm like, I need to give myself more stuff to do. And I'm like, no, we, we, we can't not nail these three things now because there's just three things and we're going to put everything into it. Yeah. So that's something I would say. And when I talk to other people who are in business or starting a business or thinking about it, I'm like, get your head out of the clouds like I've been there too and like, yeah, or think about the blue sky for a minute but then come back down and realistically plan out for what is a kind of very hard, often rocky road in the first 12 to 18, 24 months.
3: Mm. Mm.
1: Do you ever doubt your success or, you know, your capability of building it into what you want to build it into?
0: I doubt... Sometimes our expectations on turnaround or timelines. Mm. I've never doubted the success because I, I believe in fluff and I know there is a place for it. I think that doubt is really important because it makes you question. It makes you challenge yourself. It brings you back to the ground. And some of the things that we have doubted, we have then pivoted on and it's been so beneficial for our business. One of those things was changing our packaging. We wouldn't have our, like, incredible weighted compact that is kind of like this icon for us as a brand now if we hadn't have doubted our original shitty plastic packaging. So I think doubt is great. I think fear is what can paralyse a business or that instalment of, like, fear as a, a permanent thing. So doubt should be, like, temporary and then you move on from it and you make decisions on it but you don't let it kind of penetrate you and live in you every day because that can be really toxic and especially from a like founder if that trickles down it's the worst and what do you think has been your
2: biggest I guess pinch me moment or like high because we've talked a lot about the fuck ups mm. and all that but like what's been the best moment That's so far
0: so I'm not really a stop-and-smell-the-roses person. I never have been. I remember at Frank Body 2 we did something amazing. Like maybe we'd sold our million scrub and I was just like, oh, we got to work. And they're like, stop, have some champagne. Mm-hmm. And I think I'm also – I have very high expectations of myself and standards that when we meet them I'm just like, good, great. Next. That's what mm-hmm. I expected. Let's yeah. keep going.
3: Yeah.
0: But – I think the biggest thing for me has been having recognition from people that I really respect in the industry and our investors who have said like they can see what we're doing and that they that they get it and people who I didn't think would notice us at, at such a early stage noticing us, that's been really amazing. And then just hearing from specific customers who we have girls who didn't wear makeup or didn't like makeup and finally feel comfortable with a brand, which is always amazing, always nice. That's why you're here at the end of the day. Our kind of vision is to change girls' relationship with makeup and change this idea of beauty. And when we get that feedback, that's, I guess, a pinch me moment totally.
3: Does it kind of validate for you that you're on the right path? Like when you hear people within the industry and customers actually providing such amazing feedback or knowing that you're on the map like yeah yeah.
0: definitely especially because there are so many beauty brands at the moment and it's really easy to create a brand on social and a trendy brand that people keep eating up Mm. and what I kind of realized was that I actually don't want to be the next big thing or hot trend because that means we will very quickly be replaced by the next next big trend or hot thing So we're trying to build something really strong and sustainable that will be around for a long time and that will grow with our audience, not fade away or fall behind when our audience moves on. How do you toe that line?
1: essentially you're saying you know we don't want to be the next trend and we don't want to be excessive with makeup and
0: layers you know we want to pair it yeah. back so then how but do we need to you sell grow products and sell and make yeah money? uh yeah it's really hard and that's the question for brands is what's the end goal for you and how long can you hold on and this comes back to investment how long do you need to raise so that you don't need to compromise what you stand for in order to make sales Uh, And that's something that I always tell people to think about because people, I think in Australia too, they're like, I'm just going to raise the bare minimum. I had this conversation with someone just yesterday and I said, I think you need to raise a lot more because I can tell you where that money is going to go and things often take more time, things pop up. Even the investment process, the, the sheer amount of fees that you pay in terms of setting up the investment with legal costs, it's crazy, but it's crucial. It's a real balancing act and I don't have all the answers. Um, Damn it. Yes. Sorry. Um, maybe check in in five, ten years, see if we're still going. <laughs> we'll come back. Yeah. Have us back. Yeah.
1: So you've, you've actually been described as a wizard by um, a mutual friend. So I would love to know who inspires you and what inspires you. Where do you get all these, where do you get all these amazing ideas?
0: So I feel very fortunate, but I also know that I've intentionally tried to surround myself with a lot of people who inspire me all the time. And if any of you guys know about a woman called Esther Perel, who's incredible for many reasons in her podcasts and books and talks, she talks about this village that you surround yourself with of people who give to you different things, whether that's mental, emotional, spiritual connection, someone to laugh with, someone to cry with, someone to work with, someone to play with. We we often try and put all of our eggs in one basket or ask that of one person instead of trying to have a lot of people around you. And I think I do go about seeking those people in my life and when I recognise something that someone can give to me and if I can give them something back like I put energy and effort into having them in my life so it means I have like a lot of positive people men and women and just at the end of last year I wrote down in my diary because I'm trying to write so much more I wrote a list of the people in my life and separated them into columns positive and negative and in between and writing it down like the very act of Painting to paper means that I can look and know who to prioritise time with and then who to potentially pull back from. It's not about removing them from my life. Some of my family and friends are on that (laughs) negative list. But it's about knowing who gives me energy and that's been really interesting. Charles, my business partner, is like a constant source of inspiration and I'm very grateful for what we have, even though at times, you know, do each other's heads in. Mm-hmm. But that's that's part oh, of our relationship. Mm-hmm. I have a few friends who know who they are and I wrote them down before this. It's like there's Nick, there's Tim, there's Josh and Olivia. I'm inspired by our advisor Nathan. He motivates me in a way that no one else does. Two of our investors, Jeff and Pitsy, another one of my investors, Deb. I'm so grateful for the conversations we have. My staff, Katja and Shelby, inspire me with all the work that they put in and when I see them go above and beyond, that motivates me and I'm inspired by, like, our customers and the girls we talk to every day, which is amazing. Yeah, they're the people in my life. And then, like, what either inspires me or makes me happy is a whole bunch of other stuff. Like, I love working. (laughs) It makes me so happy. I see no distinction between work and play. I don't need time off from it, which is I feel really lucky Mm -hmm. because a lot of people do. Mm -hmm. Like this silly little simple things make me happy, like bread and butter (laughs) and wine and coffee and writing and books and going to the beach. It's like my place where everything makes sense. I love being by myself but then I love having my friends around for dinner. Going out for dinner makes me very happy. Just, I think the biggest thing for me is when I think of a world outside of just myself, that's that's what makes me happy and drives me to, to do more. What's next
3: for you personally and for Fluff?
0: So the next two to five years for Fluff will be very telling. The three things at least that we want to focus on this year is one our issues platform or our editorial platform and kind of pulling that out on its own and finding its own audience and then connecting it to our product as opposed to our product being connected to our issues but it's really special I don't think that any other brand has what we have with our issues Um, I think it's needed in terms of giving consumers something intelligent and thoughtful to read other than what's currently being presented to them. Uh, We're building out our rep program for customers and girls who really embody our brand. Uh, And then we're looking at what fluff in retail outside of our own store looks like. Who would we partner with, either here or internationally? Because I'm not scared of that. I used to be, you know, I used to want all of that for myself, but I I also know that that's probably against what we stand for, which is being accessible to a bunch of girls. That's kind of our focus, and I, I want fluff to be more than makeup, and that's exciting for me. That's where I see our growth in the next five to 10 years. Personally, I've been in Melbourne for the last two years, and it was so great to return home after travelling so much with Frank. But I feel ready to explore something else in me personally but through fluff too and seeing where our next market is whether that's Europe or the US so we'll see where that takes me but yeah we 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 have this vision of changing the beauty industry and the way girls see beauty so that's kind of just checking on that soon (laughs) I love it
1: Thanks for listening. Please be sure to subscribe to our podcast. Follow us on Instagram, lady.brains and head over to ladybrains.com.au to find out more about our events and other cool things that are happening.